Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. I'm Andy Boyd. Today we're talking about Rude Mech's Lipstick Traces with Sean Sides and Lana Leslie. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks. Thanks. So, uh, you know, for people who maybe haven't had a chance to, to get to this uh, fantastic book yet, this is a graphic novel based on a stage show that Rude Mech's did and then toured for many years which is itself based on a 450-page work of cultural criticism. Am am I more or less getting that right? Yes. That is accurate. Great. Great. And I I think it's, you know, there's sort of a nice form and function thing of the the chain of transmission for how this book came to be is, you know, almost as convoluted as the train of transmission traced in the original book. But I'm sure we'll get a little bit more into that uh, later. So this is a production uh, by Rude Max, uh, which is an Austin-based theater company that you two are both members of. Is that is that how the company works? Uh, we are, yeah, we're we're a collective. So Sean and I are two of the seven people that co-founded the company, and we are uh, two of the five um, current co-producing artistic directors. Great. And Sean also directed the piece, right? Yes. Great. Great. And Sean, did you perform in it as well? Oh, heck no. Heck Lana no. Did. Okay. Lana did. I know. Yes. <laughs> um, why do you say, oh, heck no? Um, uh, well, why do I say, oh, heck no? I feel like I really needed to be on the outside for that one. I feel like I always kind of need on, to be on the outside. I am not, uh, I am just not very good at being in it and directing it at the same time. So, I mean, it's happened since then, like with Method Gun, but usually it's because I've directed somebody else into the role first, somebody else originated it, and then I just sort of understudy them, like copy what they did. <laughs> so, um, yeah, just because I'm... I, I think it's possible. I think there are amazing people out there who can both direct and perform in a thing, but I ain't one of them, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, either inside or outside. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have some outside perspective, I think, on, on most types of theater projects. I think that's true. Um, so, and the five of you, are you, do you have sort of permanent roles as I'm a director, I'm a performer, I'm a playwright, I'm a dramaturg, or or do you kind of, switch hats depending on the needs of the production how's that work nothing Um, is permanent (laughs) yeah yeah uh like we have things that we all personally feel we are better at than other things (laughs) and and uh we also have you know opinions about each other and what we think we're all better at but we um we are all free to do whatever we decide we want to do on any production 
Great. Hopefully those opinions line up at least most of the time. They do. They That's do. Good. That's most very good. of the time. We're not most. entirely diluted. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit diluted. Just, sure. just enough. Just the right it's, amount of diluted. <laughs> you got to be a little, at least a little diluted. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about kind of how you started the group? What was the kind of founding uh, vision? What's the, you know, what was the impetus of let's, let's form a theater company? Well, back in Yeah, we all, um, a lot of the people who six of the seven co-founders, uh, all went through this um, program in the English department at the University of Texas called Shakespeare at Winedale, um, where you study Shakespeare through performance. And uh, we didn't all do it at the same time, but we several of us did it together at different times. Um, and that, I think, is the sort of, that, I think, helped us understand flatness like how to create a sort of non-hierarchical collaboration um, because there is no real director out there at Winedale. You know, 19 people put on a Shakespeare play together and they do everything. They do the lights, the costumes, they direct each other, they perform, they crew, um, and they're doing it all within the play itself. You know, you run from the stage to the light booth to do your scene of, in the light booth. And then you run down and hand somebody an ice pack because it's an outdoor theater in Texas summer. <laughs> um, so that sort of taught us that we really enjoyed, uh, I think, um, collaboration in a way that I don't think back then people who were studying theater in college got to experience. Um and so that was sort of a foundational idea for the company. Uh, I, I also, I have a question that I, I hope won't seem impertinent, but uh, why did you decide <laughs> to stay in and found a company in Austin? How dare you? Which is a great, I mean, I love, I want to I be very clear. I want to be very clear. I'm in, I'm in the, the, the bag for Austin. I have family in Austin. It's a, it's a cool town, but you know, most people who decide to try to make it in the theater uh, don't go to Austin. Maybe they should go to Austin, but why, why did you just, is this a rude question? You can tell <laughs> no, me if it is. I mean, I think it really, it, the, I, the key phrase there was make it um, like make it in the theater. And I yeah. think that was something that we all, none of us had any pretense about like we weren't trying to get our plays on Broadway or be famous Broadway actors or even be famous, you know, downtown New York theater actors or whatever. We t talked about it a lot. You know, um, Sean went off to grad school in New York. Sarah, one of the other co-founders went off to grad school in California and um, Kirk and I had moved to New York, which is actually where we met Sean. Um, and we did it, you know, the one play there. And it was like, oh, that cost us everything we had. And literally no one came and a junkie took a crap on the, <laughs> on the theater entrance. So that on sucked. opening night, Kirk on opening it up night. with, with a paper towel. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I so, thought that was an I thought that was a a sort of salty old New York you like uh, uh, no, you yeah. know that's a real thing that happened. That's, a true, yeah, that totally happens. <laughs> so when we decided to start the company in Austin, we talked a lot about like you know 
how much support we already have here. We could start with a board of directors of people that we know and love and trust. We have a donor base already because we've all been here for so long. Um, Austin is also called the Velvet Rut, and especially back in the late 80s, early 90s, it was, um, why would you leave? You know, my rent was like $250 a month for a huge one bedroom in a really amazing part of town. Like there was, you could actually work very little and survive and make art, you know, like work day job type jobs um, and not kill yourself to make rent so that you had time to make art. Um, so that was, I don't know if any of those sentences made any sense. No, that totally, together, that absolutely made sense. I, uh, I went to Arizona school for the arts for high school and I mm-hmm. spent a lot of time hanging around the the punk scene in Phoenix uh, as a kid. And, and that was like why people stayed in Phoenix was my rent is $300 and I work 10 hours a week at a coffee shop. That's right. <laughs> like, yeah. Why would yeah. I leave? Like, Living uh, the dream. Yeah. Living the fucking dream, no doubt. Cool. And then uh, how long was, I mean, so this play, Rude Max, toured quite extensively. Uh, Was this the the first show that you really toured? Or or how did you, you know, how did you go from being a a cool company making cool stuff in your town to being a company that was touring all over the time? Oh, for sure. <laughs> Rudmex is cool. This is no. <laughs> oh my god. Um, we really lucked out. It was the first play that we ever toured. We didn't even really know we wanted to tour, um, but there was a guy um, who invited us to go with him and his theater company to New York to the Ice Factory Festival at the Ohio Theater. Um, that was our first time to like take our work anywhere. And we only had a workshop version of the play. It was like a 40 minute long version. And we were, Kirk was literally writing manic history, like on the plane. (laughs) Um, So it was still just being, you know, put together. Even Uh, we didn't have any designers with us or anything. It was kind of a hot mess. Um, And, uh, and then from there, it, we realized that it was kind of a thing that we should focus on. And then the Mid-America, no, the Midwest Arts Conference came to Austin the next year when we were actually finishing up this play. So Sarah Richardson, um, one of the artistic directors, uh, was the, you know, the brainchild behind really making sure that she got all of the presenters that were here for the Midwest Arts Conference to our theater to see Lipstick Traces. And she got a lot of people to see it. And it was out of that, that we developed a relationship with Melanie Joseph and Philip Bither and Chuck Helm. Um, so Philip Bither really was the one who sort of put together our, it, it, we did like a four venue tour to the Walker, the Wexner to CSPS 21, and then to diverse works. Um, and that was thanks to Philip, like helping us. We didn't know really how to do it. Um, so he really put that together and got those presenters involved. And then Melanie, meanwhile, was working on uh, putting together producing rights so that she could produce it in New York for a real six-week run. Um, And then she took it on a tour to the West Coast and to Austria. Um, So we went to like Seattle and LA and then Austria with it, um, with the foundry. Um, But it actually, like we were really hoping it would tour a lot more, um, but it, you know, it didn't. (laughs) 
I mean, the the Sex Pistols only had one American tour, so maybe that's appropriate. <laughs> Thank that, you. Yes, that's perfect. That comment, I realize, will make no sense to anybody who doesn't know what the show is about. Um, <laughs> I mean, so like getting into this show in particular, Lipstick Traces by Griel Marcus is like one of the craziest books I've ever read. Um, and I, I feel like I'm a guy who is known to read a crazy book. But this is like a truly like like I was, I was talking about it with with my partner and I said and you know they were sort of like well what do you what's this giant book you've been reading for three weeks and I I was like well it's <laughs> it's sort it's about how the Sex Pistols are sort of the latest incarnation of a secret tradition of like uh, nihilism going back to the Gnostics and my partner just sort of paused and said like do you think that's true. <laughs> Which is like not a book you ask, like not a question you ask about most works of history. I mean, it's, you know, it's published yeah. by Harvard University Press. Yeah. And yet, like, it's a book you can very legitimately ask, like, is this all bullshit? Uh, so what did you, I mean, why, why did you, what possessed you to try to make a play out of this insane uh, book? Well, both Kirk, this is Sean talking, both Kirk and I had worked in bookstores um, in our early-ish years, our, like, just post-college years, and it was uh, flying off the shelf, and it was an important book. Certainly, I think it still is, but certainly at that time, like, late 80s, early 90s, it was the cool book to have. I mean, and it's... Like you like you're a, a dorky nerd who works in a bookstore, but there's this really smart book that has Johnny Rotten on the cover. Like, yeah, of course I'm gonna read that, or at least mostly read a lot of parts of it. <laughs> <laughs> I eventually did read it before we did the play. I really did a deep, hardcore read before we started rehearsal. But when we first decided to do the play, I don't. Think I had actually read it all the way through every word. I don't think that Kirk had either quite yet. <laughs> like it was in the house. Like it was still just in the house, you know. Like, mm-hmm. but um, the book invites. Read. Yeah, it invites. Uh, you know, needle dropping inside there. You don't. It doesn't. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it doesn't require you to start at the on page one and go to the end. So. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, I think it was kind of a dare among us all. It's like, oh, right, here's this book that we've all read-ish, and uh, we all love the parts that we've read. <laughs> I dare you to I'm do it. it. I dare you to do it. Yeah, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say nobody but Kirk and Sean had even read <laughs> even parts of that book. It was leap of faithy on the rest of our parts. We were like, okay, if y'all want to do that, cool. Um, I guess I'll start reading it now. You know, that was very leap of faithy on the rest of our parts. Just the two, the two of them were like, I dare you. I dare you. I dare you. I am. I was one time at a party in college and uh, I was talking about books with some book nerds. And one of the book nerds said that his favorite book was uh, Gravity's Rainbow. (laughs) And I said, oh, nice. I just finished that book. Yeah. Really crazy book. And he was like, well, you finished it <laughs> after after telling me it was his favorite book. I think that's Lister Traces is kind of that kind of book. I read it because my my cool uncle recommended it to me. 
Um, it, other than it being, I mean, yeah, other than that, then uh, Kirk wanting to do it and you guys sort of being pulled along and then agreeing to do it. And, and uh, did you, were you, uh, did you have any experience in punk? I mean, was that important to you? It's, it's, it's like what maybe a third of the book is about. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I want to say that I wanted to, I think like there's sort of a tug of war about whether which one of us, Kirk or me, decided we wanted to do the book book first. I just want to get that in there. I mean, right. yeah, come on, man, Kirk, get out of here. He's not even here. <laughs> He's he can't not on the call. Himself. Yeah, sure. That's Say whatever right. you want about Kirk. <laughs> I think, but I will say that I think punk was much more important to Kirk in his uh, kind of growing up years than it was to me. I think it would be to me. And I have some like good, important stories, but I grew up in this tiny, small town and I just didn't have access to the sex pistols. Like if you, if they didn't play it on, you know, 97 FM, I, I, I had no access so it wasn't a part of my formative high school years. There was this very cool guy um, who was a lot like uh, Matthew McConaughey in Days and Confused. Sure. Then I was riding in that guy's car <laughs> one time in high school, and he put on some music, and it was it was the craziest thing I'd ever heard in my life. I couldn't believe it. And everybody just sort of froze and stared at the stereo and said, what is that? And he said, his name was Chase Elliott. Of course it was. And Chase Elliott said, that's the six pistols. <laughs> and yeah. so that, I, re- I have a strong memory of that. But as for like in my really early formative years, I, I got no punk cred. I can't. I can't claim it. I um, later, a little bit later, a little bit here and there. But yeah, what about you, Lana? Um, yeah, I had two older sisters. Uh, one of whom was like the music buff, the the sort of catalog she could index, um, you know, with the best of them, and. Uh, so as close as I ever got to punk was through her and as close as she ever got to punk was a deep abiding obsession with Patty Smith. Um, but never, she never drifted over into sex pistols or, um, and then I think like later I sort of have that guy experience. Like there was a friend in high school who introduced me to punk rock. Um, but it wasn't anything. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go out and buy all that shit right now. <laughs> I just listened. It was like, well, that's cool. Okay. Right. Um, and this was all, of course, pre-Riot Girl. Yeah, this was theme, in the 80s, so. like the early 80s. Yeah. I had a friend in middle school who wrote the Sex Pistols on her jeans in Sharpie. That's how I Wow. Yeah. She was cool. <laughs> yeah, Laurel Lundgren. Shout out to Laurel Lundgren. Way to go. Way to go. Yeah, she was cool. Um, that's awesome. Um, uh, so one element from the in the show that it doesn't have a sort of direct analog in the book is there's a sort of second narrator character that Lana that you played. 
and and so and Lana's care Lana's narrative character sort of played off Malcolm McLaren, the legendary manager of the Sex Pistols and also the Clash, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And they sort of seem to represent uh, e- e- something. What do they? What do you think they represent? Why are there two narrators? And and what? How did that? How does that work? Lana, I don't know. <laughs> Lana, um, in a play that in the play, in my fa- my thesis production when I was writing um, a thesis, um, <laughs> we all made a play together. There was a deconstruction of Taming of the Shrew, and Lana invented this character, Doctor Narrator, and. Doctor Narrator is dry and smart and really, really has important things like to say and to share with you. And uh, yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't want to talk too much about the character because like you made it up, but it was yeah, it was I mean I'm gonna just jump in. I feel like yeah, do, uh, p- part of the reason that uh is that we needed a we needed some kind of uh first of all we wanted a woman to be in the fucking play <laughs> like we just wanted yeah. at least one one woman um and not a lot of women in this book not a lot of women in this play not a lot of women in the history you know grill shouts out to the occasional um woman who was a part of each of the movements if there was one but uh so we just wanted that voice like a um a and then B, we wanted a counter narrative. Uh, one of the things that's fun about the book is that it, you do ask, like, is this fucking true? And I think that is a, that's a sort of vibe that we wanted to keep in the production itself. Um, so having an argument about whether things happened a certain way or not going between two, two different narrators, so you aren't quite sure, um, was the idea, I think, um, so to set Malcolm up as telling his own story, but to have somebody next to him going, mm, that's not exactly, no, that's not exactly what happened. No, the whole time sets up some kind of tension um, that I and, think was necessary. And then you have Johnny Rotten kind of come out on, on towards the end and give his side of the story. Yeah. That's that's yeah. one of the things that I feel like the the your book captures really well about Griel Marcus's book is that like the whole thing, like the chain of transmission is pretty solid from the Gnostics to Malcolm McLaren. And then the only thing that's like, is this real or is this not? Is like, do you believe that Malcolm McLaren gave Johnny Rotten a book and that he read it? <laughs> like, so, so true. That's the weakest link in the chain. Yeah. And, and, and you have, you know, you have Johnny Rotten pretty much, you know, try to, he's kind of deflating Malcolm McLaren's myth of, of, you know, yes, I orchestrated this whole grand thing. And Johnny Rotten's like, no, you didn't. I wrote the songs. They're about, I'm angry at everything. I, I decided to call myself <laughs> Johnny Rotten. <laughs> and that's part of the, that's part of the play too, is that like it, the question of like, is this actually a tradition? Does it need to be a tradition or is it enough if it's just like, if the the sort of hegemonic superstructure is set up this way, then there will always be sort of the negative of that, that somebody decides to express and says, no, I'm not going to work. Work is boring. I'm going to do what I want. That's more fun. Yeah. 
But also, I mean, that's pretty reductive. Um. Right. No, yeah, I know. I love that voice. I think that voice is the most important voice that happens every time it pops up in a generation is to go, wait, it's the critical thinking voice. It's the, no, it doesn't have to be this fucking way. No, it doesn't have to. I'm not going to do that. Like, I, I, I love that because we're sheep otherwise. And I don't want to be sheeple. <laughs> do you think that's have that voice? And, and do you think that's really that what you just beautifully articulated there? That's like the real answer to like, why this book? Why this project? I think so. I mean, for me personally, like that's my connection to it anyway. It's my personal, like why I could stand doing that play, you know, creating a play from scratch is like a a long, really difficult, arduous. It's in terms of theater making, not in terms of like jobs you could have in the world, but in terms of theater making, (laughs) it is a long, arduous kind of painful process. Um, and you have to find your way into a project that connects you there and will keep you there. And that, that idea, um, was, I think my connection to it. Um, I found the way you portrayed Guy Debord really funny. Um, (laughs) do you want to talk about him a little bit? (laughs) Um, I mean, Sean, I think that's all you, I really didn't have... Oh, well, you know, honestly, I I have to give a lot of props to Kirk on that one. I, um, <laughs> I, is there a particular, are you thinking about uh, I, when he's at the cafe the, table or when he's doing his movie? More the movie, I guess, which yeah. is just so, yeah. Could you want to talk about what this movie is? Right. <laughs> so... We um, Oh, I'm so glad you remembered that title. Oh, I guess because you yeah. were drawing it. Um, yeah. Yes. All right. So the book touches on various events. And I think even subconsciously, I don't even think we knew what we were doing, but we would gravitate toward things that were actual events that could be staged. Of course, that's what we did. Duh. But I don't think we oh. actually consciously <laughs> knew that's what we were doing. Um, good good so, impulse, Sean. That was smart. <laughs> me it's show- really true. <laughs> I'm going to just pause you just to say, like, one of the very first thing we did as a group, there were like 13 of us at the table at the beginning of this process, was divide the book up into sections. And each person was charged with going to read the section and then staging something from that section. Or writing something, not staging it, but like writing a thing that could be staged. Um, so I think that's how we ended up sort of unconsciously gravitating towards things that were actual events. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Cabaret Voltaire and Michel Moir taking over the cathedral and then the screening of this Guy Debord film that was just a blank screen. <laughs> Which to me is hilarious. And people watched it and they stayed. And um It goes on for a while in the in the book in the graphic novel. Um how mm-hmm. long did it go on for in when you actually did it? Oh I feel like I th- I feel like it in in real life, how long did it go no, on? No, no, no. No. In the in the in production. The oh. Um 
it sort of depended on whether Guy and I were going to be like how how deep we were going to dig into that. Like if the audience was willing, we would take a really long time. <laughs> I feel like I expressed the time right in the book. Yeah. Like that's how it felt to me. And things always feel faster on stage even. Um, but like if you look at each frame individually and like sit with it for as long as you would any other frame, that's that feels like how long it took. Yeah. Yeah. I love how you uh, explore that idea of duration because so much of what makes theater fun is things like duration and timing and surprise, which mm-hmm. are like hard to do in a medium that's not a time limited medium. But I, I feel like that sequence is a really genius uh, way to do that, where you, you just show Gita Boer sitting there smoking for a while, like for just like, <laughs> you know, 20 or so frames and the narrative being like, is this, is it over? What is it still going on? <laughs> Yay. That's one of my favorite sections of the book. So I'm happy. Yeah. That's works nice. for you. Um, yes. This reminds me actually of a quote that I wrote down that he says, uh, that Gita Boer says, where he says, and what is history anyway? It drifts mostly. Is it simply a matter of events leaving behind things that can be measured? What about those moments that drift by leaving nothing behind? I mean, in a way, that's sort of the challenge of this book is how do you take something that is a performance and tr- try to capture more about it than just the words that you said? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Wait, was that a question? No, I mean, it should have been. I didn't <laughs> ask a question. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but, no, I'm I'm in complete agreement with you about that. I that like that wonderment. Yeah. Um, and, and is I guess that was a good time as any to transition to the kind of that topic is um so 53rd State Press, wonderful theater publisher, yeah. uh reached out to you, right, and said we want to do some kind of a book about about Rude Max, uh, about some show. I don't know how what they said. Um <laughs> Why did um, yes, you, they, yeah, tell, tell us about that process. They did. I, I know what they said. They Great. were, um, they, they connected with Kirk, I think, um, uh, and wanted to know if we wanted to publish any of our plays, um, like one of our plays. And we, of course, wanted to, um, our play that everybody knew the best, Method Gun, had already been published um, in, uh, because it was in Humana Festival. Um, and then it was also published in Play, a Journal of Plays. Um, so we uh, we we wanted we decided we wanted something a little more representative of all of our stuff that we loved. Um, so we talked about doing three plays um, in the publication, and they said yes. So it would include Method Gun, and then a play that we created called Requiem for Tesla, and then Lipstick Traces, um, and. They were really cool about that. And then it just sort of evolved. Uh, we, we put it, you know, I was put in charge of lipstick traces, like figuring out what we were going to do. We had a, several meetings about like how we wanted to approach these books, looking at all the other stuff that had been published by 53rd State Press and all the really cool, cool books our peers had put out. And, you know, how did we want to enter into that catalog? And, um, uh, and it just sort of winnowed down to uh, lipstick traces over time. And I kind of had just like a vision of it. I tried to find people who could draw to do it for a little while. And then I was like, I am so type A and I'm just going to boss this artist. And <laughs> I, 
I just need to figure out how to draw so I can just do what I see in my head. Um, so that's, and then I was like, it is, you know, it's, it's about this whole DIY movement anyway. So it doesn't have to be great. It can be shitty. And that, that gave me the freedom to do it, to just decide that it could be as shitty as it was going to be. And it was still going to be the thing I made and it would be very representative of the, of the play. Yeah. I want to stipulate it. It's not shitty and you did a great job. <laughs> uh, Thank you. And I do feel, I mean, I think, I think you're drawing on the aesthetic of like punk scenes and that shows and it's like, you know, it's, you can see the, the Sharpie lines, even when it's the black space, that's very cool. But like, it looks, it looks great. Um, when I, when I first heard about this book, I just assumed that you like were a graphic novelist and you also did theater, but that's, I mean, so like I draw a little, I do do, like dumb little cartoons, uh, and, uh, drawing graphic novels is like a famously labor intensive art form. Did you know that? I did not know that. No, I just had... (laughs) Like, like there's like you a know, whole Art Spiegelman book where he just talks about how hard it is to make graphic novels. <laughs> <laughs> He's just such a wimp. I mean, <laughs> I found it so easy. No, I had no idea what I was getting myself into at all. And it took like, you know, over time because I had a job already and uh, was our, was making plays this whole time and touring and stuff. It took a long time to get it done. It took me like three years to get it done. Um, because I would pick it up for six weeks and then put it down for a year, (laughs) you know, pick it up for another two weeks and put it down for three months or whatever. Um, and I also had several false starts. Like I didn't know how to do it. So I had to learn how, um, and I, and I started at the beginning, like, so that, that opening monk, um, scene, it's just like the bane of my existence for the better part of a year until I figured out. And then I just decided to go forward with the book. I kept going back and trying it. Um, and, and so it ended up being one of the last things. I think it's one of the best like pieces of art in the book. And it's because it's one of the very last things I did. Um, yeah. Like I um, learned a whole, whole bunch before I could figure out how to do that one scene. Can you talk about your process of that a little bit? I mean, like how did you learn how to make graphic novels? Um, yeah, I just, uh, um, my partner, uh, Peter, um, does a lot of drawing. He's actually really good at it and I should have just made him do the book. <laughs> um, but, uh, he, he really inspired me, um, because he, do, he does a lot of like printing something out and then printing it out again and again and again and messing with it and distorting it and then drawing from there. Um, and so I took, I wanted to represent the um, the play when it was at the Southern Theater in Minneapolis because um, that theater is just so gorgeous. Of all the venues we did it in, that was the one I wanted to represent in the book. Um, and I just that's my one like sadness about this this um, re- rendering of it is that I never did quite get the theater itself across very well. Um, but anyway. Uh, I used our videotape from that show um, so that, and I, I learned that I didn't, I don't understand perspective at all. <laughs> In fact, I may not have any um, like depth perception or, you know, I just like, that was my, I just couldn't figure out how to draw anything to scale. And so I printed out um, 
frames of each scene and then uh, reverse them and put them into a negative so that I had an outline of the stage so that I would always have the scale right, no matter which angle I was using. Um, so I used the videotape from the play to print out and then drew from there. So I always had a shape of a person, at least like an outline of them. Um, rarely did I have their features or their clothes or anything in there. So a lot of it is just like a big old, you know, Sharpie coloring book. Um, and the, and the art part of it for me was deciding like how to, what style the the drawings needed to be in to sort of best evoke what was happening in that scene. Um, was it all just sort of dark and big fat Sharpies or was it really like line drawn? Was it really dynamic or was it really still, um, those kinds of things like 18, that was like the second hardest thing to, to figure out how to do Johnny Rotten's audition. Um, Singing Alice Cooper's 18. Yeah. Which is another it? event. An event <laughs> that, <laughs> that we, we staged. Did I answer your question? I just, yeah, yeah, rambling, yeah, definitely. So. And, and it seems to me like, I didn't, I guess I probably sort of unconsciously picked up on this reading the graphic novel, but it seems like a lot of what you're doing with pacing has to do with line, right? Like the scenes where things are happening really quickly, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of white, it's a lot of thin lines and the scenes where things are slow are, are, are darker, are thicker lines. Is that, was that conscious? Um, I don't know. I don't think that was conscious like what the the darkness and the light like i really 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 i think this is like almost uh, it's in my mind at least an homage to brian scott's lighting design um i really tried to to make you see it so um if there is a lot of white that is because brian put some big squares down on the stage and i tried to make it go um yeah, it's mostly about like his lighting, what you're it's seeing. Mostly, in it's the mostly book. like that's what it looked like. So that's what you drew. Yeah. Yeah. Like I want you to see what it was like as much as possible. Was there, yeah, that's an interesting comment. Was there ever a thought about like, you know, what if you drew a representation of Johnny Rotten's audition singing Alice Cooper's 18 instead mm -hmm. of drawing an actor? Per like playing Johnny Rotten, like reenacting Johnny Rotten's audition, right? Does that make sense as a question? Yeah, totally. And that I went down that path, like that was what I was talking about, about like learning how to do the graphic novel. Cause I, like one of my favorite uh, books is Alice in Sunderland. And it's um, so, that's sort of what I wanted to do is like have the narrator character be in color and then have everything else be in this real inky sort of zany, black and white, punky, like wash and, and to just collage together, like, you know, uh, like for Michelle Moore's riot at Notre Dame to like collage together all these images of him being like hung in this basket and the church and the bells. And, you know, I just had all kinds of crazy big vision for it that I just can't draw. <laughs> like, I can't draw that. <laughs> I don't know how to draw. I can't, it's not me being modest. It is like straight up the truth. It would have taken, I would have had to have gone to art school and then tried to do the book. Um, so I, so I decided, and then 
And then I was grateful for not being able to draw because it did bring me back to the original intent, (laughs) which was to like publish the script. And then the idea that theater is so ephemeral and that, you know, if you went and saw the play, it's, it really just exists in your mind. And how can we create some kind of permanent artifact that is representative of the actual, actual performance? Um, and that became the goal was to really to pull out the Minneapolis tape and to really look at that and, and decide that it's like super worthy of being recorded. The action of that play and the people in that play are super worthy of being recorded as much as the text, which is not representative at all of what actually the experience of seeing it live is. And I think there's, there's something, I don't quite know, I'm not smart enough to know why this is, but it feels to me like the book that you made, Lana, is a closer document of what it felt like to go to the show than actually watching the video. Um, That's the goal. Yeah. That makes me super happy. Well, I think that it happens. And I I do not understand why or how, but I, it has something to do with what reading is and how, I, like, what it what happens in your mind as you're looking at it, at the at the drawings and the page as opposed to watching a, a video which – is more passive somehow. I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that mm-hmm. totally makes sense. I think it's sort of about like, you know, when you're reading something, part of what you're doing is like completing it in your head. Yeah. And that's also part of theater. And it's not part of watching a movie. Like when you're watching yeah. a movie, like they are, they giving you everything. Yeah. Usually. I, yeah. Y- yeah. 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 That's great. Huh. Um, let's see what else. Oh yeah. That's another question I wanted to ask. Um, does the graphic novel contain the whole script or did you edit down the, the, the content of the performance when you were making the graphic novel? Nope. It's the whole thing down to the like errs and ums. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What was it like for you? Uh, I mean, like I think it would be mortifying watching yourself so many times. (laughs) Um. I only, I only really had to watch myself once um, and then just print that shit out and stop listening and watching. Uh, I actually really like our kind of group performance of the uh, Minneapolis at the Southern theater more than any other performance because it was our first time to tour and we were at a hugely important venue, like the Walker um, art center was like hugely important moment for our company. And we were all just like baby actors who just, we were grownups, but you know, we were just scared and had like this crazy energy and you, I think can just smell it on us in the performance, even in the video of it. Um, uh, I have no idea what I was answering now. It's fine. Um, Do you feel like now that you've uh, made a graphic novel, do you feel like that's something that you want to pursue more, or do you do you feel like I'm never going to spend three years of my time (laughs) drawing something in Sharpie ever again? 
I mean, I actually really, really enjoyed that process. And if I didn't have anything else to do to make a living, I would absolutely, and I could make a living doing that or, you know, put food on the table. I would love to do that to all of our place. It's hugely uh, rewarding. And also it's just a different kind of creativity. Like um, one of the reasons I really loved this project was that it was something that I just, it was a piece of art that I made on my own after like 20 years of collaborating um, just at, and, and still collaborating throughout the process of making the book. I did, I found like a little side project that was really mine that I didn't need to like run by anybody or talk to anybody about really. Like I'm really lucky. My colleagues just gave me free reign to do whatever I wanted with this piece of art we all made together. Um, and, uh, and just let me, you know, have fun with it on my own, which I absolutely did. It was a blast to make. Yeah. And then, and at the same time, preserving the show as a graphic novel rather than a script does, like you said, sort of allow the other members of the company to have, there to, to be recorded as well and not just not just having it be you know all about the playwright mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exactly do you feel like this show and the experience of making the show and touring the show changed the company at all uh absolutely it was a it was a giant shift for us to um enter the national scene uh, and meet all of the people that we've gotten to meet over the years because of that. It was lipstick traces that put us there for sure. What about internally? Do you feel like spending all this time with, you know, punks and situationists and dadaists changed the way you made work? Oh, interesting. I think making the play, in, like every play we make, influences the way we make the next one. Kirk says often our our next process is an apology for the last one (laughs) as we try to heal the wounds we've inflicted on one another. Um, (laughs) So true. (laughs) Um, I I don't, I, well, how could it not? I guess is if there's a where it explicitly has, I don't know what that way is, but I can't imagine Having all those people, Guy Debord and Johnny Rotten and Michelle Moore and John of Leiden and Greil Marcus and evil Malcolm McLaren. He wasn't evil. Just, kind of, just a little, just a little <laughs> evil, a little bit evil Malcolm McLaren in our heads <sighs> so early and for so long and so intensely didn't shape or misshape something inside all of us right (laughs) do you have like favorite characters from the show i mean i i just very much love gita and in the show um of all of the people that are in the play is that what you meant yeah yeah is He's it really the- what you meant? <laughs> I, guess, I mean, I don't know. Like, I think that's an interesting question is like, is it, you know, are these, are you playing historical figures or are you playing a character who also is named Guy Debord and also, you know, shows this weird blank movie? Um, did you like, how much did you try to like, uh, I don't know, act like these characters? Uh, how much did you try to like, 
right? Or how much did you give yourself permission to be like, this is a play. Everybody knows that I'm not, you know, different actors had different approaches to it. You know, like when T writer Smith, I, I think all, every single actor that took on a character um, understood the rude max desire for there always to be a layer of themselves present in the piece. And, you know, we call each other by our first names in there um, so that we're not trying to convince the audience that this is actually um, Tristan Zara or Richard Hulsenbeck, um, that it's, you know, Robert Pearson playing Richard Hulsenbeck or T. Ryder Smith playing Richard Hulsenbeck. Um, and then I think there are some of like when Gavin Mundy, who originated the role of Guy Debor, I, I don't think for a second Gavin ever as an actor was like, and now I'm going to do my best Guy Debor. <laughs> like what Gavin was going to do was put on a his best worst French accent and and deliver the text as a sophisticate. Like that I think, you know, was his idea. And then James Urbaniak becoming Gitabor or um, I, I feel like almost had the exact same approach, but then the people who were playing Malcolm McLaren and Johnny Rotten, I feel like they felt because those are characters that the public, the, the theater going public has a connection to, they felt more responsibility to be closer to the actual person. Um, but you know, nobody knows what Richard Hulsenbeck was like. Nobody hung out or saw Gita Bohr really that much, you know, yeah. Michelle Moore, like you can do whatever you want and it's going to feel like, a an accurate historical sort of rendering of that character. But Johnny Rotten and Malcolm McLaren, I think they felt some pressure. People have, people know what they kind of sound like. And uh, yeah. Um, I, I couldn't help but noticing that a big part of the book that's not in the show is, uh, the Derive. Which is a Guy Debord thing where you get very drunk and wander around. Yeah. And I was trying to think <laughs> about, was. like, why is that not the show? Was it? It was. Oh, we I want to hear that. about this. It was. Yeah. Because yeah. it's not an event? Because it's inherently boring to look at? Why'd you take it out? I guess maybe that was it. That it wasn't an event. But no, it's I mean, actually, like, it. melded into – it's melded into that um, post-film part. Like, the because yeah. we had that whole floor pattern for the Derive, and I remember that. And so that speech – uh, it drifts mostly is, is I think mm-hmm. actually a reference to the derive that we had before we kind of cut that scene. And mm-hmm. so there's a tiny little hint of that floor pattern in the play that's, that's staged to that speech The it drifts mostly. Oh, um, cool. That is actually the derive that became, that. but you can't mm-hmm. tell the book is almost, it's impossible because I just have us all standing still essentially in the book, but. Yeah, he does do it. He it's in it's almost in complete darkness, and he drifts around the stage, making that speech. I remember early on, like that was a scene that we still had in the play when we were rehearsing for the Ice Factory Festival at the Ohio, and we were at the Ohio, like working on that scene, and those characters, and like the actors, like it was like okay, just like do the frug. It was a lot of fruging. <laughs> I remember. remember a lot of fruging. I, I don't know why we were fruging, but that got cut. <laughs> I can't I'm, imagine why we cut that. I may be showing my ignorance here, but what is fruging? The frug. It's a dance. It's that 60s dance where like, how can I describe this? 
You keep your elbows. Oh, Pee Wee Herman would probably do this dance. You keep There's a your lot of Goldie Hawn, I think. Close to, closest to your torso. And you kind of hitchhike twice over to the right. And you hitchhike twice over to the left. Does this seem like something you can picture in your mind? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more or less. Sure. Um, <laughs> did did Grill Marcus ever see the show? He did. Yeah. He saw it a bunch. Oh, cool. What did he th- what did yeah. he say? He's so cool. He wrote us a letter after the first time he saw it that's maybe the nicest thing that's ever been written to our theater company in all of its bajillion years. Um, oh man. Which yeah. was just like you 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 did the thing I was trying to do with my book. It was like that cool. It was longer and it had a lot more words in it, but that's essentially what he said that like blew us away. Yeah. I, I, yeah. You would think a a letter from Grill Marcus would be long. (laughs) It was not, it was like, it was a couple of paragraphs and it was like really, really nice. But I mean, he also, you know, we hung out with him and have been state, have stayed in touch. You know, I emailed him to get permission to do the graphic novel. And he was like, it's yours. It's yours. Do whatever you want. I can't wait to see it. Like that's how cool he has been from the beginning to the end of this whole journey. Ooh, I said journey. I feel like I'm like a, I'm a, I'm kind of, I think it's fine. Journey sometimes (laughs) is a a word. Um, I'm I'm kind of weirdly like a seventies rock music criticism nerd. And I feel like Grill Marcus is like one of the only dudes from that generation that you're like, pretty sure he's not just going to say something horrible. Like he's like just a good dude who had good opinions about things. And like, maybe you won't like a record he likes, but he's not just going to say something like totally weird and, you know, awful. <laughs> you're like, he has never said anything weird or well, awful. Well, no, I mean, listen, I could pull quotes from any of the other guys and you would say, yeah, that's a horrible thing to say. I can't do that with real Marcus. <laughs> yeah. I saw yeah. him at a I saw him at a jazz show once. He was having a really good time. He was like, like cool. stand- Yeah. Huh? No, what? What was he I doing? Just, <laughs> he was just he was just he was standing up. It was an outdoor show. He could have sat down, but he was standing up and he was just bopping his head and just like really into it. And it was so such a sweet moment of like, oh, this dude's been writing about music for 50 years and still just loves music. Yeah. Hey, how? How is he yeah. not like music? Ugh. Yeah, I hate you forever. No, you really. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say other, he's not going to say something terrible. Do you mean like dumb, or do you mean like nasty? All the other. I mean, like things. mostly, I mean like racist or sexist or oh, dismissive oh, of black right. music, or you know, there's like a lot of that oh. that goes around. Oh god, for sure there is. There's like yeah, a no. yeah super decent man yeah he he like doesn't really do interviews but he flew out to london to interview the raincoats after he heard their first album that's a cool thing to do that's a super cool thing to do he said slater kinney was the best rock band in the world yeah that's it you know that yeah Yeah. how how cool must that have been for them i mean he's not wrong they're probably the best rock band in the world but still yeah (laughs) totally um is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't asked you or anything else you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? 
Uh, I don't think so. I mean, the book is available on 53rd State Press and on our website. If anybody wants to get out there and grab a copy, um, it's still in print. (laughs) There's plenty out there. Um, That's all I can think of. Sean? I guess our website is rudemex.com. There's that there. (laughs) Got to get the, got to get the plugs in before the end. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's all. (laughs) Well, cool. Thanks so much for being on the show, guys. This was so much much fun. Thank you. I really enjoyed the book.